one of my best friends up here with me, Claire, uh, better known as Claire Bear, to those of you who know her. Um, and so this morning, um, we're going to talk about, we're going to continue our series of um, the Summer of Love series, and we're going to talk very specifically about when love hurts, when it actually costs us something to love the way that Jesus asks us to love. Um, so I don't need to introduce her. Do I need to give her an introduction? Really? Yeah? Yeah, I do. Okay. Claire. Hi. <laughs> what age are you? Don't ask me that. <laughs> Younger than you. Yeah, I know. That's true, actually. <laughs> that one didn't work. <laughs> um, tell us about your family. Okay, so um, I am married to Victor, the long, long-suffering Victor, 20 years next month. <laughs> and we have two great boys. Ben is 19 and Andrew is 15 and a half. And how long have you been part of the family here at VCD? Um, just my, my anniversary will be, um, be 10 years now on New Year's Eve or Christmas Eve. Wow. When my amazing. auntie Carlin dragged me up here to deliver a hamper. I like that, anniversary. We're, we're going to trademark that. That's a real word. Okay, it's a anniversary now. We want you all to think when's your anniversary. <laughs> we're going to ask you at the picnic so that I get counted and see when that is. So I'm just going to jump right in. Is that okay? Because I'm conscious of time and uh, we have tried to tighten this up quite a bit, so uh, um, don't think we're going to beat Jason, but you never know in the time stakes. We might just do that. Okay, so I want to start off with um, two weekends ago, I was in Dunkirk with Paula and Nigel Graham, Brian and Diane Cummings, and Sam and John Ross, and actually I was chatting to Brian the other day, and, we, and I realized that he mentioned that it was November 2016, is that right, Brian? 15. November 2015 was the first time that Nigel, Brian and Adverse had headed off to northern France to first um, begin to serve the refugees out there. So this is an ongoing ministry. Um, I have dipped, this has been my third um, trip out or experience, but these guys have been consistently and regularly going out to that area and to the people there for the past almost four years, which is amazing, isn't it? It's amazing it's that length of time, but it's also incredibly startling that it's still an ongoing issue four years later, and yet not really in our news a lot. So this time we went out with the usual objective. We were going to bring provisions for the refugees that were still living um, in trees and bushes, um, to love them with the same love that we have received from God. And on this trip as well, as on other trips, but on this trip, as well, the team really wanted to have an opportunity to share Jesus with people, that it wasn't um, just the practical, as important as that is, and it's so important. Um, there's, a, there's a slide to show you just the amount of stuff that we, Nigel, managed to pack into his camper van. I still can't believe it. I didn't realize the camper van was as big until we'd unloaded everything. That's the truth. There was a whole other half of the camper van that I hadn't seen. Once everything was loaded out, I was like, wow, look at the space in this place. It was literally floor to ceiling, um, full of tents, sleeping bags, backpacks, uh, bags of blankets and clothes and all those things. And just on that, those, these guys are all year round doing the work for the refugee trips. You know, they're sorting clothes, they're driving to, Nigel and Paula driven the weekend before to Tullamore, the whole way there to fill the camper van with these tents and sleeping bags and, and bring them the whole way back up again. But as I say, we wanted, as well as all that practical stuff that's so, so, so important, we also wanted to um, have opportunities for conversations with people 
um, about Jesus. And Diane had gathered up um, Bibles in different languages, which you think in this day and age you would just go on Amazon and you just select the language and pop them in your basket. Well, what we've discovered is it's not just that straightforward. It's a wee bit more complicated to get Bibles, especially in certain languages, um, and especially in Farsi, which is the, the language of Iran, which a lot of the people we were meeting were from. And if you were here at church two weeks ago, when we were still out there, you would have seen the video of um, us baptizing three of the young Iranian men. How many of you were here to see that? Wave at me. So some of you. So yeah, that, that was just one of those moments that I will never, ever, ever forget. Um, I'll never forget Nigel coming, bolting up the steps of the camper and saying, Michelle, I need you. And I'm thinking, <laughs> Nigel fixes everything. He couldn't possibly be wanting me to fix something, so I have no idea what he wants me for. And he said, there's, two, there's, just, there's a couple of boys here who want to get baptized. I was like, really? And he goes, uh-huh, I checked. I, I put it into my Google Translate just to be sure, because I wasn't sure if their Google Translate was working, because sometimes it doesn't. It's quite funny, actually, having conversations with Google Translate. Um, but we baptized three wonderful Iranian men on the Saturday night, and then on the Sunday there was a fella that... John and Sam had spent quite a bit of time chatting to the day before, and he was a believer. And when they told him that we'd baptized people the night before, he was going, you do that? Can, you do, can, can I get baptized too? So we ended up again, different beach, same scenario on the Sunday night, and we got to baptize another man. Um, and it's really surreal and humbling. You don't, it's, it's really hard to put into words what that was like, to stand in the sea um, and to baptize a believer who is from, all four of these men are from Iran, where Christians aren't just persecuted, they are actually um, sentenced to death. So if you convert to Christianity, if you decide to turn your back on Islam, then it's a death penalty for many, many people. So for, they can't go home. Many of them fl- have fled because of their faith. Many of them have left because of that. And that is the story of another lovely man called Cain, who's a really good friend of Nigel's. In fact, that's the only way I can now describe him. Having seen the two of them together, these two men have forged a really deep friendship over the last year and a half. And Nigel and Brian had met Cain in the camper van about 18 months ago, and he was in real despair. And he'd left Iran several years before that because he'd become a believer. And it was so dangerous, not just for him, but for his family. So he felt that the safest thing for him to do was to leave. And... By the time they had met him, he had run out of hope and he was just in despair as to, he was stuck in northern France. So they chatted with him, they spent the day with him, they prayed with him, they had, they had a meal with him in the evening and they waved goodbye to him. They headed off to the ferry and they, they left him behind. And later on, the next day, um, the team were all sitting in Liverpool waiting to get back on the ferry again and Nigel gets a text message from Cain saying, where are you? And Nigel goes, I'm in Liverpool where are you? And he says, I'm in London. So he had made it safely to London. And um, he, their relationship continued, their friendship continued. Then Nigel found out he had sought asylum. He'd been granted asylum. He was moved to Preston. Um, another time Nigel and the guys were over, they went to visit him. They uh, were encouraging him. And he still was brokenhearted because his family were back in Iran. So fast forward to July. And Nigel and Paula and the kids and the family, they're all in Canada having a family holiday. And it was the 12th of July. 
I don't think there's any significance in that other than that's when it was. And Nigel opened his phone and there was a message on the WhatsApp and it was from Cain with a picture of him with his family at the airport. And after about four years, was it four years they've separated? Yeah, four years apart, this family was reunited by the Red Cross. The Red Cross had organized it all and brought the family all over. And the best bit of this story, well, not that's the best bit for them, but the best bit for us is we got to go and visit them in Preston on the way back on our trip. And it was, this is us in their house, and it was a delight to just meet this family. And actually, after the whole few days of hearing horrific stories and the hardships and everything, was to actually meet a family where it actually has worked out. And they now have a better life. And to listen to their 14-year-old daughter, who was interpreting, talk about how happy they are to be in a country that's free. How delighted they are to just start feel that they now are, are living in a place where they can believe what they want to believe. They, they just have such freedoms in the UK. And so often we take that for granted, don't we? And that's what people are coming for. Mostly, I don't know everyone's story, but when we're there and we're talking to people, it's the freedom and the justice that we have in this country that people are coming to. And it's the injustice and the lack of freedom and the oppression that they're fleeing from. Don't believe the headlines in the papers, please. Because if I lived in the situation that these people are describing to me, I would leave too, and I am absolutely sure that I would sell everything I had and give the money to my sons and tell them to go. 100% sure I would do that. So here I am back home two weeks later, and I still feel incredibly conflicted about my trip to France, our trip. I have been struggling, and yeah, conflicted is the only word I can use. I, I know that we do good when we're there and we love and we, we pour out Jesus and we give practical things. But I, I come away with this feeling of, Jesus, there has to be more. There has to be more. And I have, I have been struggling with that. And any of you, there's, I'm looking around the room, there's many of you who've been out as well. You know what that feels like, don't you? You come back and you just feel, you feel torn. You hear the stories of people who have walked for days, weeks, the, you heard stories of people held in detention centres and beaten. Another man witnessed refugees being shot dead in a country where they treat refugees like pests. Literally, he saw people shot dead in front of him. We hear stories of people who have left families behind where they have um, months, years ago, and the desperation and the hopelessness has, has kicked in because they can't go back and they can't go forward. And here they are stuck, living in trees where the authorities come three times a week and take away their tents and their sleeping bags. And they're back to square one. Do you imagine that? Three times a week. You know you have a tent and a sleeping bag, and then the next day you know it's going to come and be taken from you, and you're right back to square one again. And you're relying on the charities, and you're relying on the humanitarian aid people to come in and actually give you somewhere else to, to sleep that night. So much uncertainty, so much hopelessness. You know, you've people who have left mothers and wives and children and brothers and sisters behind. And the hard thing for, for us, the hard thing is when you make a connection with, like Nigel did with Cain, or like we did when we ate and had a meal with our brothers in Christ, and they're our brothers in Christ. They are as much my brothers in Christ as any of you are. 
you know, there, if it was you there, Tom Bailey, you know, it, it, it might, you know, it might as well be you or Dave Flanagan or, or whatever, you know, that they're our brothers in Christ, just the same, and, and we have to leave them behind. It's very, very difficult. And I don't like sitting in this place of frustration. I don't like it. I don't know about you, but I don't like it. I don't like sitting in a place of frustration. I don't like wrestling with what would Jesus do. And most, most of us don't, do we? And I think there's two things that, that we tend to do. And one of them is we either don't emotionally engage or else we try to come up with too quick and oversimplified solutions. And I would say in the past, I'm guilty of that. I like to find solutions. I'm a problem solver. So I like to find solutions and fix the problems. But it's really difficult to do that whenever something is so complex and so overwhelming and it's really hard and I don't like the wrestling and I don't not like how it makes me feel. I, I would much rather disengage. So I understand that so often it's just easier to disengage and turn off from the plight of people rather than sit in this really hard wrestling place. And the people that we met, the men that we met, the young men, the the, the, the people, the countless people that we chatted to, that we served cake and cake and cake and more cake and cr- chip chips, chippy chips, chippers, chippers, dates, nuts, everything, and, and Chris, uh, yeah, all the stuff, all the food. Uh, 600 pounds worth of stuff we gave away in two days. Isn't that amazing? And a lot of that came from you guys, fundraising whenever we've done whenever the teams have done lunches and different things. Isn't that amazing that we're able to actually physically give away £600 worth of stuff to bless and love people? It's amazing. Well done. Well done, team. Nigel and Brian and all the rest of you. Fantastic job. And these people that we met, they represent currently in, in, in the world, there is 25.9 million refugees. Now, there's way more displaced people than that, but a lot of people are internally displaced. But official statistics is 25.9 million people in the world. That is a huge amount of people that are refugees. 1.4 of them are settled at the minute. But that's a huge number of people that, that these people that we met are only just a small tip of the iceberg. What would Jesus do? What would he do if he was there? What would he do for the refugees? What's his answer? What would he, would he do? Yes, I think he would love like we love. I think he would provide the stuff that's needed. He would feed them. Or he would get his disciples to, like he did in the... On the I think there was times I was praying over the cake when I was cutting it, to be honest. <laughs> or I would go to the cupboard and think, when any cakes left? And, oh, there's more cake. Maybe there was a bit of miracles going on there. I'm not sure. Yeah. I want to read from 1 Corinthians 13 this morning. I'm going to read from the Passion Translation. And this is a passage that's read many, many times. Those of you who are married, hands up who had it at their wedding. I thought it was going to be more than that. There you go. Very often read at marriages, weddings. But true love costs us something. And this this is what this is about this morning. True love costs. It's not cheap. The love that we see in Jesus that took Jesus to the cross was not a cheap love. It was an all consuming, fully sacrificing love. So let's read this together. It's going to be on the screen. If I were to speak with eloquence in earth's many languages and in the heavenly tongues of angels, yet I didn't express myself with love, 
My words will be reduced to the hollow sound of nothing more than a clanging cymbal. And if I were to have the gift of prophecy with a profound understanding of God's hidden secrets, and if I possessed unending supernatural knowledge, and if I had the greatest gift of faith that could move mountains, but have never learned to love, then I am nothing. And if I were to be so generous as to give away everything I owned to feed the poor, to offer my body to be burned as a martyr, without the pure motive of love, I would gain nothing of value. Love is large and incredibly patient. Love is gentle and consistently kind to all. It refuses to be jealous when blessing comes to someone else. Love does not brag about one's achievements nor inflate its own importance. Love does not traffic in shame and disrespect, nor selfishly seek its own honour. Love is not easily irritated or quick to take offence. Love joyfully celebrates honesty and finds no delight in what is wrong. Love is a safe place of shelter, for it never stops believing the best for others. Love never takes failure or defeat, for it never gives up. Love never stops loving. It extends beyond the gift of prophecy, which eventually fades away. It is more enduring than tongues, which will one day fall silent. Love remains long after words of knowledge are forgotten. Our present knowledge and our prophecies are but partial. But when love's perfection arrives, the partial will fade away. In verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 13, it describes love, and the word that's used is the Aramaic word, huba. I like that word. Let's say it all together. Huba. Huba. And what that means is to set on fire, and it's really difficult for us to express the meaning of this word and translate it into English. You could say that the Aramaic concept of burning is of burning love or fiery love, coming from the inner depths of your heart as an eternal energy, an active power of bonding hearts and lives and secure relationships. We often talk about the Greek word for love, agape, which describes the love that God has for his people. An intense affection that must be demonstrated. Love must be demonstrated. It has to have an outpouring. It has to have an action. Here at the Vineyard, we talk a lot about love as a verb. You've probably heard us say that many times before, and it remains true. But love is a verb that can lead you to hard, heartbreaking places. It's not fluffy. The love as a verb does not just lead you to the easy and the comfortable. It will lead you to places where you will sit with people in distress and in pain with no easy way to fix it. Nigel invited me one morning to come and see where some of the men were sleeping near our makeshift cafe. And it reminded me initially of Dungannon Park. It was a lake with trees and shrubs, but nowhere near as pretty as our park. We nipped into the trees through a path into this cleared area, and there were six tents huddled together with makeshift clotheslines out of branches. As we quietly walked through, because the men were still sleeping, I sensed Jesus there. It was tangible. He was right there in the middle of those tents in that clearing. And it reminded me of so many times when I was in India and in the poorest of poorest places and situations and the same thing I experienced. It was like, honestly, if I looked across 
look this way or that way. Jason talked about this last week. It's almost like I was afraid to look over into those bushes because Jesus might actually go, <laughs> jump out at me. And I know Jesus is everywhere, right? But I find his presence is way more profound and pronounced in the broken, hard, heartbreaking, desperate places in the world. And the more we set our hearts on following him and becoming more like him, he is going to lead us to those places. The question this morning is, will you go? Will you follow Jesus to the hard, hard places where you know your heart is going to be broken, where you can guarantee that you're going to be disappointed and where your head is going to be completely melted? Will you follow him there? So this leads me on to why Claire's here and she's thinking, Michelle, you're never going to shut up. No, I'm not. So Claire is heavily involved in a, a charity and an organization that she is so passionate about. If you talk to Claire for any more than five minutes, she will talk about SCH. Ten seconds. Ten seconds, yeah, we're down to ten seconds. So Claire, tell everyone a little bit about Sarah's Clavens home, Homes. Okay. Please. Um, so Sarah's Covenant Homes, uh, I've been involved with them now for about six and a half years. Um, God really captured my heart for this organisation. It's, it's not a traditional orphanage, it's a, a group of family-style foster homes um, for children who've been abandoned and they all have um, either severe medical needs or a disability. So it's a really cool setup. It's, it's set up in family-style homes, so it's the closest thing that we can provide to um, a forever family. It was founded in 2008 by a lady called Sarah Rabavarapu, who is now a close friend of mine. Um, Sarah saw what everyone else could see, but she did what no one else was doing. And I just, if it's okay, I'd like to repeat that because it, it, it seems to really fit in with uh, what we've been learning in this, in this series, The Summer of Love. Um, we've been learning um, in July, I remember Johnny talking about um, how in James 2 verse 14 we're told that we need faith and deeds. So faith on its own is no good without, without the deeds and equally deeds are no good without the faith. Um, I believe that, that God called me to this because these children really just need us to pour our, put our Christianity into action. Um, Christianity is a title but it's, it's nothing without the action. Um, I had been given so much by Jesus that I just really wanted to try and give some of that to others. I wanted to, to try and be like Jesus um, and f I follow him. So I was wanting to do what, what he does. And all through scripture, you'll see how, how God favours the orphan. So yeah, I just wanted to Good. follow him. So can you tell us a wee bit about that then, Claire, in this journey of the last six and a half years of when the love that you have... Um, for the children, and not just the children, but the, the, the house parents there and the people that are, yeah. the volunteers that are working over there. Mm -hmm. Tell me about a wee bit about that, about when that love hurts or costs you. Yeah, okay, so when I look back, I can see how there has been pain and cost um, to me and to, to the whole team. I mean, I've taken teams out to India and, and there's been a whole team of people here that have been involved as well, and there's been a cost to all of us. Um, probably the most dominant and ongoing cost, I would say, is frustration and disappointment. I can see um, when SCH, I can see on Facebook when, they, when a new child arrives, and it, it's all really exciting, this new child arrives, like, like you'll see on the next slide there, um, wee Danny, he's a wee tote, and that's Katie, loving on him. Um, 
that's, that, that photo looks lovely, but it's really bittersweet because we know that Danny's just been abandoned. Um, and those wee ones are now in the hands of a stranger, a lovely stranger that Katie is. She, she is a stranger to that wee man. Um, the mummy and daddy have either chosen or been forced to abandon that baby forever. And that's, there's so much trauma and damage and pain involved in that. Um, and as a mummy, I, I, that really rips the heart out of me just to, to think of that. Um, and not just for the children, but for the parents too. I mean, you don't abandon your child lightly, obviously. Um, it's not something that's done easily or, or painlessly. You know, there's a mummy somewhere crying from the pit of her soul for that wee one because of what she's had to do. Another one of the heartaches for me um, comes because I've learned along the way that the ones that get to SCH are actually the lucky few. Um, there's been a lot of other babies that maybe don't survive or they're, they've been sold or they're suffering terrible abuse. Um, and the ones that, that aren't rescued, you know, so my thoughts are always with the, the other half of that, that equation. Um, but upon a positive note, the children are now at SCH. It's a great place. They'll get love. They'll get therapies, education, nutritious food. Edith's like us coming over to blow up balloons, <laughs> all that sort of thing. So they're, they're not in a place where um, they're in a dangerous situation or their needs are not being met to a, a very good extent. Um, but it's still not a forever family. It's still brokenness. Um, so it is bittersweet then. Um, whenever I see adoptions happening on a lot of my contact with with SCHs on social media because you're watching their story unfold and then communicating back and forward with them so whenever an adoption happens it's just really awesome but the flip side of that is there's wee faces in a room and they're watching as another brother or sister gets adopted you can see here just a small selection of our adoptive families we just oh, that's it um, so you can see uh, we Suma here with the with the dog, and that she's the, we're, we're really connected with these people. Um, so yeah, it's really heartbreaking for the kids to get left behind, the ones who who don't get picked, and they just feel really rejected. So yeah, those kids that are left behind, though they're they're left in familiar surroundings with caregivers and a foster parent who really care for them, and they're going to meet their needs. Um, the foster, the foster carers are typically young American women who, who feel a call to go and volunteer and serve as a house parent. And this is Taylor, um, who, who's doing just that. So that's a long-term commitment between one and three years, typically. Although we had one, one lady who stayed six, six years and went home with a wee Indian daughter as well. Um, so you can imagine the negative impact then of these long-term caregivers coming and then going again. It's, it's another abandonment almost, you know, and again, there's, there's trauma and attachment issues and all that kind of thing goes along with that. Um, a lot of the, the, there's a lot of preparation goes in to try and prepare the kids for long-term fosters leaving because it is really traumatic. Even when they go on like visa breaks and things, they, they put a lot of work into preparing um, for, for the, the kids for those the impacts of that. Um, and a lot of the kids actually don't really have the maturity or the cognitive ability to, to, to understand that or, or to cope with it. So you don't even know what the scars are. You just know they're scars. A lot of our kids do go home with a significant um, attachment disorder. The whole thing is just really broken. 
And there's no way to undo the damage of that original abandonment and, and the mess and the lies that led to it or the, the subsequent mess that it creates. Um, yeah, so you can really see in this, I think, that God's intentions when he's telling us to turn away from sin are actually for our benefit, not, not for his. It's not to please him. It's not, um, it's not control. It's love and, and protection. It's not his indulgence, but he's just trying to save us from ourselves. Yeah. And what's the, what's the personal cost to you, Claire? Tell me about that. Mosquito bites, mostly. But <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, my heart pays a really heavy price, if I'm honest. Um, one thing that really gets me is when kids age out of the adoption process. Um, that means that they'll stay at SCH for the foreseeable future and they'll never be adopted into a forever family and it just feels like a waste because they're so precious and they're so amazing. This wee man here, mm-hmm. incredible. And, you know, to know that he'll never be in his own proper real family, you know, is, is heartbreaking. Um, so SCH continues to try and combat that. We continue to try and develop our vocational program where um, the kids um, make items to sell, they grow food, they do different crafts and learn skills and that gives them a purpose and a value. Um, and that's something we, um, as we have a wee group here, Friends of SCH Dungan, and that's something that we've really invested in um, with, our, with training and, and finances and provision. Um, it's a great program but still will never be in a forever family. It's just really sad. Mm. So that kind of breaks me because it feels like a loss of hope and unanswered prayers. Um, but then, Jesus, <laughs> those kids are rescued. They're safe. They're living in an environment where they're really loved and really valued. And, and yeah, the people that care for them are, are fully, fully invested in them. Um, and they have joy, you know. And, and SCH is, is, a, is a Christian Christian community. And they, the, the girls and boys that are sort of older, between 17 and 28, because we don't, we don't age kids out. Once they get to 18, we don't say, right, off you go now. That's, that's not how we operate the thing. But um, those kids request to be baptised. They worship. They, oh, they're just amazing. They know Jesus. They pray for each other like, every day, constantly, you know, so it's great. So you can see, like, the roller coaster. You know, it's terrible, but it's brilliant. It's terrible, it's brilliant. You know, it's just constantly that kind of way. And another thing um, that I can't not mention is just because it's India, you obviously know as well, like, and a lot of people here have been to India or involved in the the work we do with India here at VCD. Um, The country and the culture there that the kids are born into is a disadvantage Mm. to them. Um, special needs, disabilities, um, disfigurements especially are widely seen as a curse and a burden in India. Um, and that belief is just full of big fat lies. It's wrong for a country not to protect their most vulnerable and to care for them. And that's not based on European standards or UK standards. That's, that's God's standards. It's, it's truth. So yeah, just um, from Proverbs... 41.13, whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honours God. So it's just wrong. It's in the book. I work as a classroom assistant in Spurnview Special School. <laughs> and we have brilliant facilities with appliances, teachers, child protection, all kinds of opportunities for the, for the kids. And that just reminds me how tough it is in India with, with no education board, 
no NHS, much as you complain about it, don't, because it's not, at least it's there. Um, another question that kind of tortures me is, why are those kids' wee bodies broken? Why is their pain and life-limiting illness? It's just, not, it's just not fair. It's really frustrating. So that brings me back to God and his, his truth and his love, and I have to trust him. I have to remember that he didn't actually break any of this. It's not, it's not from him. It's not his doing. That's just where I land with it, just back in prayer with, with God. And that, yeah, I do struggle with the mosquito bites. Um, and they turn into big, hot, red not welts. As, not as big welts as mine. Oh, no, mine are bigger. No. No, no, they're bigger. We have been known to send each other videos uh -huh. and pictures uh -huh. of our mosquito welts. Yeah, just look at to mine, it's red and it's throbbing and the tusks coming out no, of it. No, mine is actually yeah. worse. No, mine mine's worse. worse. She mine's did want to put up photographs, but we decided no, because well, there may have been... Your legs, I hadn't so shaved my legs, no. So. Photo. Yeah. Didn't think you really wanted to see those no. photographs really no. on a Sunday before your picnic. So, <laughs> um, so tell me, and, and one of the things about um, just when you were talking there about the the brokenness of the world, I just had a flashback to um, we're a wee bit sad how much we talk about India because we went out in a wee day out to Hillsborough. The, uh, to a cooking show thing I don't know what it was food festival, food festival. and we spent our time walking through the gardens talking about this very subject mm -hmm. <laughs> we're like walking through the garden going wow well, you know let's talk about this the brokenness of God and how do we do this and yeah. all this here so it's part of um, part of part of our sharedness and that and uh, our friendship is this journey that God has led us in separately yeah. often we have only ever done one trip together but this this thing where God has just gave us compassion for the broken and, and just keeps leading us towards them. And um, yeah, so tell me a wee bit about when you're frustrated. Um, tell me about what that looks like when you're having a conversation with God. Okay, this is vulnerable central. <laughs> um, the conversations I have with God about this aren't always pretty. Um, I've been known to shout at God, why are you not stopping this? Why are you playing golf? <laughs> That's happened. Um, yeah, raging prayers are, are not that unusual for me. Um, sometimes when I'm here and we're saying God is good, you're meant okay. to say all that. Where were you? <laughs> Jason, God is good. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> sometimes that just doesn't roll off the tongue just so easily um, when I'm really frustrated. And it's okay with God. I mean, he wants that real raw thing I mean there's not much point in me trying to hide it from him anyway when he has a bird's eye view inside my heart so I just might as well get it out and get on with it and get it sorted between us so um and sometimes I just it's so it's kind of frustrating because I'm there in this raging prayer and God's just I have this picture of him sitting in the big armchair smiling adoringly at me you know it's just it's annoying and I keep going and keep raging and he keeps smiling and up I get in his knee and yeah we just I just collapse in a pile of don't know how to do this and uh, he just gently reminds me that he feels it too he really feels this these are his children yeah. they're not mine they're, they're his um, and together he and I are, are working on it we're we're trying we're working on it um, yeah and most importantly he assures me that he is going to fix it that there is a solution to this and he has it and I just have to trust him with that it's all in his time and I, I firmly believe that I firmly believe that God is a good good father and, and that he didn't break the world we did um, and he can only intervene when we when we invite him to our sin broke everything 
everything we suffer is not a punishment but a consequence of, of the sin in this world and um, the abandonment, the promiscuity, the greed, not valuing women and girls, turning away from God in these brokenness is man-made and it's not God-made. And I, just, I just remind myself of that constantly. Um, I've also been blown away by God's faithfulness through all of this um, in the midst of any pain or any cost that, that there's been along the way. Um, he just soothes me with this balm of love constantly. Like every time I bring something to him, he, can, he just soothes it. Um, there's been gifts of joy and fulfillment. And, and yeah, just my happiest place in, is just sitting on the floor amongst these kids just loving on them and blowing up balloons and, well, don't blow up balloons anymore because Ruth had a wee injury to the back of her eye. We don't do that anymore. <laughs> balloons are banned. A wee blood vessel had a wee issue. So we're not doing that anymore. Just watching the teachers laugh and dance. And, uh, yeah, it's heaven on earth for me. You just pop on that and that's it, yeah. Um, another thing I really love is just whizzing about Hyderabad in an auto looking for a plastic shop and the sounds of the horns and the voices. Yeah, it's just... It's a great place to be. My heart be so happy. So yeah, it, it, it's just it does cost to love SCH. There's definitely a cost, but I think anything valuable has a cost. It, it has to have, otherwise it would have no value. The cost gives it its value. Um, it's like Ruth Walker's garden. I don't know if you've ever seen it. it it's, an, it's an incredible wee, wee place. And, and I don't think that would have the same value if it hadn't cost Ruth in and time and sweat and thorn scratches and dirty boots and money and all the things that it cost to create a space like that. It didn't just pop up one morning when she opened the curtains. It wasn't just, ta-da, there's a lovely garden for you. So love costs, yes, in the short term. It does cost, but it is an investment. Love actually pays, and the return is just unimaginable. Um, the return awaits us, and God has promised that. So that's the why and the how. So good, Claire. Um, so this morning, I want to land us in these stories of... Um, we didn't want to just report back on our trips to um, the refugees and to Sarah's Covenant Home, the team that went out uh, with Claire there. You know, we, when we hear these stories, we just don't want you to hear the stories and go, oh, that's great, those guys are amazing. Because the truth is... Um, Claire and I aren't that special. Well, we're pretty special. We're pretty special. No, but we're are. very ordinary. Just like all of us are. You know, we're all very, very ordinary. And, um, but what I'm learning more and more in my journey with Jesus, my personal journey, and as your pastor as well, but what I'm learning is that um, the closer that we walk with Jesus, the closer that we stay tight to him, the tighter we stay to him, learning um, that it's more than likely that he is going to take us to his precious ones. That that's where he's going to lead us to. The closer we stay to Jesus, that he's going to take us to his precious ones, the ones with the broken minds and bodies, um, the, the people with, who have left families behind, the ones who are longing for a fair and just country to live in, um, away from persecution and war. That, that he's going to lead us to the homeless. He's going to lead us to the forgotten. He's going to lead us to the lonely. He's going to lead us to those without families because that's where he is. So if we're following him and we're staying close to him, then that is where he is going to lead us to. And when we look at the life of Jesus, he spent a lot of his time with the people on the edges. You know, we find him um, with lepers. 
We find them with people who have um, severe mental health problems and in a time and a place with no NHS or no support at all. And, and these would have been people that would have been completely outcast. And yet Jesus seems to, it's easy to read scripture and just think he kind of tripped up on them. But he would have had to go out of his way to be with those people, to find them. And um, this morning, I, I want us to be brave I want us to be brave as a family. Um, I love this family. I love Vineyard Church and Gannon. I love us as a family. And I love that we have compassionate hearts, that we are generous, that we will go, um, that we will pray for those who go even if we can't go or we'll support them in fundraising or do whatever. But, but I want us to determine in our hearts that we are going to stay so close to Jesus and we're going to follow him wherever he leads us. But as we do that, we do that with the awareness that that means that that is going to cost us. And sometimes it's easy to pay the financial price, isn't it? It's easy to write the check to the online bank and to give the money. But it's way, way more difficult to pay with love. It's way more difficult whenever the, the, whatever word Jesus is leading us to and the people groups and the circumstances he's leading us into here, near, and far, because there are broken people in Dungannon. There are lonely people in Dungannon. There are people who feel that they are on the outside and on the outskirts of our society, here, right here. We don't have to jump on a plane or a camper van or any of those things to reach the broken and the marginalized and the lonely and, and, and to follow Jesus to where they are. We can do that right here. But I want to commission us this morning to go to the places where he leads you. Will you go? Will you go? Will you pay the cost? Even if you know it's going to break your heart. Even if you know before you go into it that you're going to be disappointed because here's the headline, people disappoint you. That's a given. And your head is going to get a bit messed up because you're not going to have all the answers. You're not going to have easy solutions. So why don't we, why don't we close our eyes?